strategy, design, marketing, UX, digital, development. This is Agencies That Build. This show is dedicated to leaders and teams that design and deploy in the digital world. My name is Jesse, and I'm a marketer and an agency owner. And I'm Varun. I'm not a marketer, but a coder and an agency partner. This show is sponsored by Together We Ship. On a mission to help agencies grow. All right, rock on. I'm going to say rock on because I'm dressed as is my rock and roll persona today. So, and uh, we're here. Varun, how are you, my friend? Great. Who do we have today as a guest? Today, we have an avid mountain biker. Also an avid basketball fan, if I'm not mistaken, the Chicago Bulls specifically. Um, he's an entrepreneur. He's an agency builder. He's the managing director of Paperleaf, Jeff Archibald. Welcome to the show, Jeff. Yeah, thanks for having me on, you too. <laughs> We're happy to be here. Did I get that right in the Chicago Bulls? No, I'm actually a Celtics and Raptors fan, but okay. I mean, who, who wasn't a Michael Jordan fan back in the day, right? We're all Bulls fans deep down. Yeah, deep down, uh, people of a certain age. We'll just leave yeah. that one right there. <laughs> exactly. Well, so the Celtics are near and dear to, to my heart, um, being a Boston. There you go. Boston area, so can't say much about the Raptors. Um, but anyways, let's dive into our favorite question of the day, of the conversation. What myth would you like to smash? What sort of misconception, bogus misconception, or something you want to set the record straight on? What do you want to clear up? Hit us. What do you got? I think, I think the whole idea around a false hustle or, you know, the, the correlation that if you're working 60 or 80 hour weeks, you're somehow doing a better job than everybody else, you know, or you're more deserved than somebody else. I wrote a post about this ages ago on my, uh, on my personal site, but the kind of counter take that I have on that is, you know, if you're working 60 or 80 hour weeks or really anything over 40, um, outside of the, the, instances where you're having to wear five hats and you're super tiny one person trying to do everything outside of those instances i don't really think it's a good thing i don't think it's something to be um proud of or to brag about online i think it's actually an indication that you haven't structured a sustainable organization yet so instead of going online or you know shooting the breeze with your friends over a pint and bragging about how many hours you put in that week maybe you should kind of be disappointed if you have to talk about that you know what i mean i love this concept because i feel like if we had this conversation a year and change ago mm -hmm. you know your opinion would be probably similar since you've written the blog post you know and this is a conversation topic but after covid i feel like you're going to get a lot more people who agree with you i think so yeah and, and it's there's a there's a weird subset of people especially like kind of in the entrepreneurial scene that this more explicitly applies to, or at least I see it in, in the circles I travel in. And maybe, you know, since most of us have been working from home, if we've been so fortunate over the last, you know, 14, 15 months, maybe that's changed our perspectives a little bit. You know, I, that kind of hit me on the head, I don't know, probably four or five years ago, because I was that person. And, and I was, I was kind of proud at, at how how much mileage I was putting on. And then I kind of realized one day, the only reason I was doing that is because I, I hadn't set up systems of accountability or the structures you need in place to actually grow an organization and make it a sustainable place to be. Well, it also, I think to some extent depends on where you are uh, in terms of your growth and the company size, right? When you are small, you're growing, you want to put more hours because not only for money, not only for you know, more work, but also to gain experience and things like that. But as you, you know, get more experience, you, you, go, you become more mature and you understand the values of time and efficiency and all that, then it strikes you like, yes, you know, more hours does not mean you know, better life or, you know, more time or, you know, more hours doesn't mean more money. Um, yeah. Time. No, I think you hit the nail on the head, Vern. Like I was, I was totally that person for probably the first, I don't know, five years at least of building the shop. Um, and we were so, we were pretty green when we started and we were so, you know, frankly scared to grow because we didn't really know how um that i would just you know do client meetings and emails and promotion all day and then do all the client work all night you know what i mean and then at a certain point as you start to get a few more reps under your belt at least for me anyways 
yeah, I started to figure out that, A, I was sprinting and this was a marathon and I wasn't going to make it very far if I kept doing this. Um, and also was able to get to the point where you actually, you know, can hire some people on and take some of those risks. You know, it's feasible because at the start, it really isn't, you know, when you're working out of your house or whatever. And this is actually an interesting topic for especially our listeners who are, you know, fairly smaller agencies, because you have seen that uh, trajectory. You have, you know, passed through that, uh, that phase of your life and you have done that. Going back, would you say that, help, that has, has that helped you to become what you are now? Or would you change that mindset if you were able to go back in time and, you know, tell yourself like what, like what should you be doing like yeah yeah like i think i'm not one of those persons like that's like no regrets you know i very much have regrets yeah. <laughs> um, but that isn't one of them i think you know it's putting in that amount of time uh, i'm not it wasn't necessarily the right thing to do but it made me realize the value of my time and and how much effort i should be putting in certain places and it also like when you touch every part of the agency, when there's just one or two or three of you, you know, it's really helpful because you, as you start to backfill those roles that you're stepping out of or that I was stepping out of, um, you understand them better. You understand kind of what they need to succeed. You know, the expectations are a little bit more reasonable than for me, if I was trying to backfill some role that we never had, you know what I mean? That's a lot more difficult. So yeah, you know, I, I'm, those, those times were challenging and I worked a lot a lot more hours volume wise than I than I do now but I don't think I would necessarily change it you know and then also then I was like you know when you start something new you still have the the sheen and the luster on it and you have the the gas in the tank to do that you know but it only lasts for so long do you I have a couple more questions on this because I, I feel like when you, you talked about stepping out of some of those roles, I think that's one of the a hard stepping stone for teeny tiny people, teeny tiny people, teeny tiny companies. <laughs> I'm only three foot seven. So yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oops, sorry. Um, based on your experience with that, where would you say, you know, and maybe Varun, I'll ask both of you this question. Where would, where was the first place you stepped out of? Where, or, you know, and it, was that a good decision? Do you re regret it or should it have been a different role? Maybe Jeff, take that one first. Yeah, for sure. And, and you know, we're not anywhere the size of Varun's firm is, but the first place I stepped out of um, was development, web development. So, you know, I, I was never particularly any good at it. You know what I mean? I figured it out on the fly. Um, a lot of online tutorials and, and code that never should have made it to a production server kind of thing. Uh, so I was actually pretty eager to step out of that because, you know, I was getting to the point where requests were coming in that, frankly, I just didn't really have the chops to do or didn't know how to do it. So that was the first role I stepped out of and we hired a web developer first. And, you know, I was able to focus more on my strengths on the client side and specifically on the design side. And, you know, it kind of went piecemeal by there. What about you, Varun? Yeah, no, I started as a developer myself too, like, you know, when we started the company. Um, in my case, it, the company was only, you know, running uh, by my partner, he had a team, but when I joined, it was similar, uh, like I, I had to learn the profession. I, if I'm getting into development, I need to, you know, understand how everything goes. So I, um, I, I did the same, but for me, the point was when we were at a point when, um, my time as developer was not um, equivalent to the amount of money we can make um, by having somebody else do the job, right? Delegation comes at that point. Like, you know, I can, you know, I can do, because my job was mostly, like, as an owner, you are always selling and doing business dev. So the more time and uh, I can put in selling and thinking about that, you know, the less time I have to worry about, you know, doing dev by having someone else do a job. So I think mm -hmm. it was, it took me like 10 years to get to that point. We were, we were very, we were in a very slow growth trajectory in the beginning. Um, right. So it, it took me a long time. I, I think it was, it was a good experience. I wouldn't change that ever. Like, I think if I did not do that, I wouldn't have understood the nuts and bolts of, you know, uh, nitty gritties of the, this, this world. So yeah, for sure. Like having a bit of that background in dev definitely helped me to, you know, throw around some somewhat harebrained ideas when we were in the solution generating phase. But 
for me anyways, because I wasn't particularly good at it, it was easier to step out of. The harder one for me was stepping out of both project management and, and design because, you know, I, I was much more competent in those areas. And so I had higher standards and, and things like that. But those are a little bit more difficult. It's, uh, you know, having done this differently, worked within organizations and run and run on teams within organizations, it is, it's the hardest point in a career, whether you're at an agency or not, to move from tactical to strategic, which is, you know, I had an old, old manager, an old CMO of mine said that to me, he goes, you need to start, you know, he literally said, you need to start, you know, you, it's going to be the hardest thing you do in your career, but think strategically and as business owners that, you know, and get out of that tactical. And so like, for me, the project management, it, 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 stop, you got to like, let it go and hiring a bookkeeper. <laughs> yeah, we hired one of those early on and that was a lifesaver because that game changer. If I don't have to do the books, then we're good to go. So yeah. But yeah, uh so you can hear my dog Gus in the background. He's letting me know that people are wandering around. It's welcome true. to the podcast, Gus. Yeah. <laughs> He's a real star of the show. <laughs> Aren't they all? Mine will meander in here at some point because it's W A L K time. So um well that leads me to the next question was you know, how did you, and Verwin, you kind of answer this, but I'll ask you this, Jeff, how did you recognize the point and when you needed to step out? Like, was there something that happened, you know, you know, for Verun, Verun, it was a, is a, is a cost thing. You know, there's a, you know, it's a, mar, you know, he costs more money to do this thing and we should be spending it here instead. So that would be my question to you, Jeff. Was there, was there a point where you recognized it? Well, like the, the early, the first um, few hires that we had where I started to step out, um, you know, the first one was just straight up. I, I just know I'm not good enough at development to get the shop to where I need to go. So that was, you know, relatively straightforward and, and I didn't want to do it. So you could kind of make the case, I suppose, that it was a more of a lifestyle choice also than anything else. Um, well, that's an interesting point. You said you didn't want to do it. I think that's something as as agency owners in particular that we for, we feel like we have to, and we don't ever think about like, do I really want to do this? Should yeah. I, can I like, you know, it's a it's such a mindset shift. Yeah, totally. I hear you. And and for me, that part that that was a reason on the development side, and then like, you know, you mentioned Jesse stepping out of uh, like the tactical into the strategic our growth was like the least strategic thing of all time. It was just like, we got really busy. And so I need uh, to hire another developer and then another designer and then, you know, a project manager. And at a certain point, maybe around like four or five, that's when we started to think a little bit more about creating an organization, you know, that had like symbiotic relationships and all things of that nature, rather than just hiring a bunch of individual practitioners, which is kind of what we were doing. Um, but you know, the, those decisions were relatively straightforward, but like the bigger moment for me in terms of like, if we want to use stepping out as a synonym for delegation or kind of taking a bit of a risk and letting go of the reins a bit was there was a moment for me about three years ago, I think where the shop was around 10 people and, you know, it was basically 10 individual contributors and me at the top. And I was doing a really poor job of managing people and selling and, you know, just trying to do all the things and doing all of them poorly and just getting so burnt out and stressed. And I hated the job. And uh, I was actually at one of the Bureau of Digital events. It was an owner camp. And, you know, I was kind of saying, I think I need to get like an operations director or like effectively that middle management layer in place. But I'm kind of like nervous, right? Because it's a, it's a whole bunch of, additional expense. And I hadn't, you know, I'm not sure I have the work in the pipeline to support it. And uh, one of the guys in the group is just kind of like, I was in your same spot. And honestly, I just, I had the right person. I pulled the trigger and it was the best decision I ever made. And so that kind of gave me the, the confidence to go back and do that. So I came back and restructured the company, put in two directors at that point. I was just kind of like, you're in charge of uh, development and you're in charge of design and PM. And, uh, and then we'll go from there. And that kind of led us to adding in, you know, the design director and now uh, a project director. And it has just made life a whole lot easier, right? Because everybody's has a reasonable amount of work 
and can actually do their jobs well. But that was the real linchpin for me where I was like, okay, I need to stop. I can't look at everything that goes out the door. I can't look at every client communication, you know what I mean? Or else it's, it's either shut down the shop or take this gamble. Yeah. And that was the, the kind of fork in the road moment for me. I like the, um, the reasonable amount of work. It's, it's, it's a good, it, it's become such a prominent kind of thing as we think about the way that work works yeah. that work works currently you know because you know back to your original myth which is 80 hour weeks aren't normal or sustainable or yeah. not a point of pride you know reasonable amount of work means you know you're actually able to stop and have a meal or take a kid to a ball game or something like that so yeah all of that kind of stuff too i'd be curious to know for for you Varun, and maybe for you too jesse i'm not too sure your background but like there's also a weird moment for the longest time it felt like clients were hiring like my uh, co-founder at the, uh, of the company was uh, her name was Andrea. It, it was like people were hiring Jeff and Andrea to do the work individuals. And, you know, even as we grew a little bit, it still felt weird for me to have these conversations feel like they are hiring us, but then, you know, designers and developers would do the work and I would almost feel like I was misleading people, but then there was a moment and I don't really know what it was when people started hiring Paperleaf, the company, and they didn't really care if I was doing the work or not. Did either of you have ever had that in your past? In, in my case, no, because um, the way we always positioned ourselves is um, a, a, a software company first, then an individual. Like when we, when I joined the company um, and we were already, I think five, seven people, um, we had some, you know, some, some branding, some established brand already there. Um, and then I was not working as an individual. I mean, I was still working as a team. Um, it, the, the difference was the team was under me from, right from beginning. That was unfortunate for them to work under me as a, you know, because I did not have an experience, but uh, that's what you get as a family business, right? Um, so, uh, but but yes, I mean, our, we position ourselves as a company. We always would have said that, you know, this is work we will do as a team. We will bring in designer developer QA and it was not one person. It was not my brand, my personal brand never was at stake. So. Right. And so for me, it's a little bit different because my company was branded after my own name. You know, there's a whole can of worms that goes with that, you know, at, at the most recent company. And it's kind of one of the reasons people would hire me, but I was very transparent. My goal is to be, to do this and grow this and be here and even rebrand and drop part of the name. So it wasn't just me. I was like mm -hmm. transparent about it. Um, and one of the reasons Varun and I kind of started all of this too, is because there's partnership opportunities, I, you know, I, coming into the agency world as a, you know, a solo person for a period of time, even building that up people you know i come you reach a point in your career it sounds so cocky and i don't mean it this way but you have a reputation people know who you are they're following you you've made the connections like there is a network there and so they want they know you they want to hire you and and being able to be transparent and say well you're going to hire me but you're going to also get some of my proteges and you're going to get people who learn my way of doing things and you know background in marketing in particular there isn't there's a strategic advantage that you're, you're buying, you know, pieces of my brain. So, but there's a way to do things like in development, like in design, you know, how to do it and where to do it and how to treat people and all the things that come with it. So that's a, that's a great question. Cause I feel like that the struggle is real there for some smaller folk too. Is Yeah. Yeah. I feel like there, there's a, there's always like an awkward middle point, you know, it's kind of like your hair. It's a couple of weeks after you're trying to grow your hair out. It <laughs> looks weird. You know, it's kind of like that in the agency growth side. And then there's a, a point where your hair looks fine and to continue the weird metaphor it's kind of like when uh at a certain point everyone who's doing the production work is actually way better than you were anyways so you're you know you're just kind of like you know i'm gonna hand you off to the people who do the actual work and you're you know that's a good thing because i'm old school i don't even i don't know how to use sketch or figma or any of that stuff anymore right so yeah no, that that i get then it gets a little easier but there's a awkward middle Totally. Well, it's the cell phone problem. 
it's not working. Can someone fix it? Like, yeah, give it yeah. to the intern. They'll figure it out, you know? Pretty much, yeah. So, you know, at, at, at one point in my own growth, I had, I love interns. I love junior people because they know more things than I do. You know, again, an old CMO of mine said 16-year-old humans run the internet. <laughs> pretty much. Yeah. It's totally true. So, like, let them figure it out and I'll just make sure they don't screw it up, you know, and that it looks good and it makes business sense and we'll teach them all the other things. So, yeah. Um, you kind of alluded to some of it, but I'd love to talk a little bit about, you have such an interesting story and the acquisition and all of that. This is a topic we have not touched on with other agency owners. And so we'd love to kind of hear, you know, your, your story a little bit there. Um, we don't usually ask it as bluntly as I am now. Tell us about your history. How did you get into this? But I think it's, you know, keeping in mind, like we talked a lot about growth and how to build and how to step out. And so, mm-hmm. you know, I, I'd love to kind of have our listeners here, you know, your you had exit goals and they've kind of come to fruition in some case. So, you know, take us back to 20, 2009, 2009. Yeah. Yeah. That's when we, when we started. Right. And like I said, it was myself and Andrea co-founder and we started the company and we were working out of the house and there's two of us and, you know, we worked through a renovation and all of that kind of stuff. Um, you know, we slowly grew, like I mentioned, and it was mostly replacing the things I was bad at. And, you know, the, when the backlog got too big, we hired people to shorten that down, that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, we went through some, some of the kind of traditional uh, positioning and, and niching a little bit, right? So, you know, later on, we became more focused on uh, websites and visual identities. That was our first kind of narrowing of the field. And then uh, we focus strictly on uh, digital products, and that's kind of where we're at now. And maybe in the future, there'll be a vertical niche. But, you know, we grew from, you know, one to four to six to 10. And then just over the last few years is when we, we grew up to kind of where we're at now, which I think is 22. And, you know, back in, I guess it would have been. That took you about 10 years, though. Let's talk about the timeline, because I feel like, you know, the media does such a horrible job of explaining, like, for every, I don't know what the metric is, but for every X number of startups, here's the number who actually make it, Mm -hmm. you know, not that I wish I had that metric someplace because I use that all the time. Yeah, it's like, I don't know, it's like 80 or 90% of startups fail, you know, in the first five years, something like that. But yeah, Yeah. we were, we were super slow, you know, and like, and uh, it was it was just a lot of um, heads down grunt work that I think got us through it. Like, I think there's a, there's some talent there that we're, they're fortunate to draw on and, and, you know, working out of the house, our expenses were low. We had a lot of privileges that, that some people don't have, and that's great. Um, But yeah, like, you know, our first, our first six months of business, we made 20 grand in top line revenue. And our first year we made 40 grand because like we were just designers who had no idea what we were doing on the business side. Right. So we had to figure that out. Um, and, you know, we, we effectively like doubled our revenue every year for a while. Um, and, you know, got it, got it up to the point where, you know, when we had our, our first acquisition inquiry, which was, I guess it would have been 2019. Um, so yeah, it would have been 10 years on the nose. You know, we were just shy of 2 million in revenue and we got approached by a private equity firm and I had a conversation with them and, you know, like good folks, it kind of, the conversations broke down just because the terms became pretty not agreeable. You know, there's, uh, it was all shares within the funds, uh, no cash in the deal, really long uh, payout. You know, just a lot of the stuff I think you want to avoid if you're trying to exit your company at all uh, or sell it, you know, that, mm. whatever you want to call it. Um, so did that you know, one. So, sorry to interrupt. I'm just curious. Yeah. Did you know because you don't come from that background? Did you know all the terms and you know terminologies in these acquisition and merger stories, like what the rules are, or did you have to buy, uh, hire um, an attorney to help you with the process? Yeah, good question. I definitely hired an attorney and uh, and an accountant, you know, for the acquisition, and I think that's just like. I recommend our clients hire us for certain areas of expertise. I am happy to hire experts in their areas of expertise. And like, you know, I can negotiate the the macro terms. Here's what the payout clauses should look like. And here's what I need, you know, all of that kind of stuff. Um, but when it comes down to like the hardcore tax laws and the actual M&A paperwork, that is something definitely I want to get a lawyer in on. 
Um, I don't necessarily think you need them too too early stage. Um, the first the first uh, conversations around acquisition with the PE firm that I went through, um, I was a little more green there. You know, I had a general idea. I'd been through a couple sessions on M and A's because you know, like I'd sorted out probably around the seven year mark mm. that like you know I should probably figure out what the long term plan is here because. I don't know, you hear a lot of stories where people just like slowly wind down their shops or it just like blows up one day and everybody gets laid off. And I didn't want any of that, like to have a much more controlled plan going forward. So, you know, I followed some of the best practices in terms of like, okay, you know, we already ran a lean shop. Um, things that matter if people are looking to acquire you are, you know, your EBITDA first and foremost. And and uh you know how turnkey the operation is is everything reliant on you or do other people do the work and are there processes in place and you know we started to to um, put those in place but for me it wasn't you know getting all of that stuff in place so like processes being organized um divesting the skill sets amongst the group becoming like a very profitable company you should do all those things even if you don't want to exit you know what i mean and then my whole point there was like I'm going to do this because it sounds like the proper way to structure your business. And if someone shows up who has an interest in acquiring the firm, then I'm willing to, I'm willing to engage in those conversations because there's other things I eventually want to do in my life. Um, but, you know, if nobody shows up, then at least I have a profitable, sustainable company that doesn't rely solely on me, right? So it's kind of like you win either way if you if you go through those steps. And that's such a smart way to approach it because there's so many people who just kind of go, go, go. And someone goes, I want to, you know, I want to get in on that. They're like, now what? Yeah, yeah, totally, right? <laughs> oh, crap. I have to clean out the things that like I haven't touched, you know? Yeah, yeah. And I think a lot of people get to the point where all of a sudden they realize they have, well, you know, like an eighth of a tank of gas left and uh, their numbers look like shit and and it's uh they're they're not a very attractive organization for an acquisition you know for, for you the that the moment came when the the company approached you not that you were looking for them somebody came and so at that moment like so you were thinking about that from the beginning or it was just like you wanted to explore that option and see what comes out of the discussions and then we'll figure it out yeah approach? yeah it's, it's basically the latter like you know i wasn't um you know listing the organization as up for acquisition or even you know kind of like letting a lot of people know like i wasn't looking to be acquired but i want to have it at the spot where if an offer came you know it was paperly was at the top of its game you know and so what ended up happening was um there was a fellow I ended up knowing who was a partner at a larger marketing and advertising firm with a couple locations within our province. And, you know, uh, we had had a mutual friend, you know, Rick is his name. He was, uh, he's from Australia originally. Our mutual friend is from New Zealand. So they got on, we got, we met somewhere. And uh, occasionally over the few years prior to the acquisition, we would just meet up for a pint or go for uh, lunch or whatever and just shoot the breeze and talk about running agencies and, and the challenges and seeing if there's any opportunities to collaborate and then you know we worked on a project or two together and then he came back to me you know i guess this would have been in um summer 2020 so during the throes of the pandemic when everything was on fire but uh I'm just saying like hey you know we're they, they're a larger shop than us, you know, they're about 75 people and they really wanted to double down on their digital game. And, you know, for the listeners who aren't aware, like Paperleaf focuses primarily on web apps and mobile apps and larger technical websites. And so he's like, that's a, that's an area we really want to focus on. And are you guys open to an acquisition if the terms are right? And I was like, yeah, like, look, let's chat about it kind of thing. And it was, it was all very informal, you know, at, at the start, you're just feeling everything out and making sure it's a win-win situation, you know? And then for us, I was just kind of like, we, we have some problems where we build products for clients who haven't figured out how to take them to market or actually acquire users, you know? And that's where ZGM, uh, Rick's firm who acquired us, that's where they come in, right? Where, okay, ZGM can offer paperly services, you know, to clients who need those kind of digital products that, you know, they don't necessarily have the, the capabilities in-house to build. 
And then conversely, we could say, okay, we're going to build you this thing, but go talk to ZGM with regards to getting it out in the market and acquiring users. So it's kind of a, you know, a win-win for everybody. You had mentioned as part of this journey, you know, obviously it worked out. There was a positive outcome for the acquisition. You know, I want to talk a quick second about, um, you know, the failed acquisition real quick. Any yeah, sure. insights, you know, quick hits there that you kind of said red flag that you were like, mm, you know, yeah. you know, any, any kind of parting words on that, you know, pun intended. <laughs> the, yeah, for sure. Like, I don't know the, um, looking back on it, I think the, uh, the due diligence asks, um, were kind of ridiculous and didn't make a lot of sense. Yeah. Um, the fact that there is no cash, you know, it's just like, it's a no brainer cash is king. Like the shares of the fund are great, but they're contingent on the fund performing well and, and, you know, the fund exiting. And so that was a huge thing. And then there was just like, what it ultimately boils down to for me was the amount of risk you're taking on, you know, and is it, is it a mutually shared risk? So even with our clients, like, when we're working on projects, we structure those deals and we structure those contracts so that we're both sharing risk. You know, we're not trying to load us up with all the risk or the client up with all the risk. And it's the same thing in an acquisition, right? Where it's just kind of like this, you need to understand that you're going to have to take on some risk and the acquiring party is going to have to take on some risk. But if those, those balances ever get out of whack, then you need to be willing to walk away. And so that's where it's really important, I think, to have the organization at a place where it's profitable and it's running well, and you're not like frantic to sell. Because I was able to walk away from a big sum of money because I was just like, no, this is a terrible deal. Like, I'm not going to yeah. sign that. And I can just go along and, you know, like everyone's happy here and we can keep yeah. uh, running a profitable shop. But if I was like down to my last tuft of hair I hadn't yanked out yet, then, you know, I probably would have signed anything, right? So after this successful acquisition you had, how, how did your role and your um, vision for growth changed or has that changed? Like, you know, what has changed after this acquisition in terms of what you want from the company? How do you want to grow the company? Because now you are working under the umbrella of, I think you, you mentioned you, work, you are still working independently under the Paperleaf uh, brand, but you are still report to somebody. I mean, you are a bigger agency now. So some growth decisions do come, you know, with them. Um, how, how is it working out for you? How that has changed for the, you know, going forward? That's a good question. And, and that was one of the, the, the reasons uh, I was willing to sign, you know, the M&A papers was the fact that it wasn't a merger and it wasn't acquisition. You know what I mean? So Paperleaf, is to remain its own brand and we are just we are to do our own things and you know everybody on the zgm side and everybody on well me on the paper leaf side uh we are like operating under those same beliefs right uh the i think there is value in being a you know a narrowly positioned brand and so if we were to paper leaf has some regional brand value if not national and so like you know, if we were to just merge all under ZGM, all of that goes away, you know? And so that was a big part of it. So to get more directly to your question, my day-to-day -day hasn't effectively changed. You know, the, the stuff that has changed is, you know, I was able to hand off running payroll every two weeks, which is great. You know, it wasn't that much work, but I don't really know what I'm doing and I don't want to screw it up. And then, uh, you know, HR and benefits administration, that was on my desk still. And, you know, I don't really love doing that. So that got handed off and, and kind of the, those are the pieces that got merged under ZGM. Back and then like, what's that? Back office stuff. Yeah, back office stuff, right? Which frees me up to do the things I want to do and I'm, I'm good at. Um, but yeah, like, you know, the not a lot of growth um, conversations, like if we're hiring new staff or, or uh, you know, changing our course a little bit or focusing on X versus Y, I just kind of make that call and, and let the partners at ZGM know that's what I'm doing. And uh, they're cool with it so long as it makes sense, right? If I'm not like I'm dumping all the money into crypto, like then they might have a problem with that. But uh, the 
And the reason we're able to do that is that we run, you know, a high margin shop, you know, and we're, we have clients that are happy. We have, you know, like an appropriate amount of turnover for the shop, like all the kind of the leading metrics and lighting metrics used to value and measure the health of a company are positive in paper leaf. And we do it. We do a very good job and a very concise job a conscientious job of monitoring those. And so like if those, I think went off the rails, um, then I think I would have to provide a lot more, uh, rationale upwards and would have some more oversight, but paperleaf got to the spot it's at because, you know, I know what I'm doing and I can run an effective shop. So they don't want to, they don't want to take on managing a whole other company, right? That's a lot of work. Yeah. <laughs> leave it to me, I suppose. So, so what I'm hearing is, um, since you are working, you know, as your own brand independently, you still decide how do you want to grow? How do you want to take paperleaf to the next level? Um, so, before acquisition and after acquisition, mm -hmm. did your growth goals have changed? Like before, for example, you wanted to get to 20 people, 25 people, and now has that changed at all? And if yes, how is it changing? Um, and if not, then, you know, why not? Yeah, yeah, for sure. It, the short answer is no, it hasn't changed. You know, like we operate on basically a three-year strategic model yeah. and we had redone our, you know, our next three years basically at the end of 2019. So we had one year under our belts by the time the acquisition happened. And so we're still trucking forward with the, the two remaining years of that three-year plan. Um, and there's no plans to change that there. And, and the growth sides, you know, for us, it has always been about um, being able to have a company that ticked all the boxes, not, and not only the boxes in terms of profit and margin and stuff like that, but in terms of like, uh, people being able to be experts in their appropriate field. You know what I mean? Like when you're small, you, like super small, you have to be like UX, UI, marketing, development, QA, PM, sales. Like it's ridiculous. And it's really hard to be okay at all of those things, never mind great. And so what we want to do is grow to the size um, where for the way that we operate and who we are, Everyone can be good at their roles. Every, all the managers can have an appropriate amount of reports and they can help them grow in their careers. And we can have a company that's profitable and sustainable. That's yeah. kind of the goal. And for us right now, that number looks like around 35, I think is what we're aiming for. Yeah, okay. Th that's actually a great way to say it and um, um, you know, put the goals in that manner where you know, it's not only about revenue, it's about doing the right thing and enjoy the work and the way they are doing it by getting better and better you know, self-improvement and make sure that you do the job well done first before you think about you know how much revenue you're making so that, that yeah, that's for sure. great yeah and i'm sure you you get this too varun and there's also like if you have if you're an ambitious person and i think a lot of agency owners are there is a certain uh size you need to be at to take on some of the more ambitious projects and clients that you want to have right like if i have a if i have a you know if we when we were five or six people or even 10 people or we still lose bids because we're too small you know what i mean where they're just kind of like well you know this project is going to take up your whole shop and so like can i give that to you what happens if two people go on vacation if you're five people that's 40 percent of your workforce gone on vacation for two weeks like that can't fly so there's that part of it too right like we want to do big impactful work and challenging work and part of that comes with having a team that is big enough to get signed on to do it how do you staff for that you know obviously one of the things that you know we talked a lot about with people is you know especially with covid how did that work and then sure. you know being acquired by a larger organization and it sounds like you guys are a little bit more global thinking with with where that's located mm -hmm. you know especially we've talked a lot about a little bit today about Varun's business you know and outsource is that an option for you guys is it something you've explored or how how have you approached to staffing some of those larger projects that you want to say yes to and being able to support and do that and not not do it in a risky way I guess is the way yeah that that's good that's a good question like Historically, we follow a very traditional kind of staffing model, right? Where we, we're not the shop who has like a whole bunch of subcontractors that we pull in. Um, we, you know, that wasn't a particularly intentional decision necessarily. We always, we have hired full-time employees. 
we have, you know, hired a few senior ones and a bunch of junior ones and grown the junior ones on the tracks that we have. And so sometimes that means that we don't have the, the capabilities in house that we would love to, to win a project. And other times it means that we have the right amount of capabilities and, and that's that. So, you know, realistically we have a, we hire, you know, like regionally now, you know, we're, we're not hiring uh, for fully remote workers. We're not against it necessarily, but just traditionally that's what we've done. We've hired in our regional market and tried to create jobs there. And we have a good process oriented shop for teaching people how to do the work that we need to do if they are a junior and uh, learning from senior folks who come in and, and we're open to changing that sort of stuff. Um, but there have been instances where, you know, like having a proper outsourcing relationship would be nice. Like where I have a, I had a client who's like, why, or a friend rather, it's like, why aren't you bidding on these government jobs? And I was like, I don't know. I don't look at the RFPs. Let me check. And I checked with the, the, the person who does that stuff. And he's like, yeah, it's all .NET. It's all .network in our regional government market. And I was just kind of like, oh yeah, that's why. Like we don't, we don't work at .NET. And I would love to do the UX, UI work and the development work, all of that stuff. But all of it is contingent on .NET. And so we can't bid on it. And so that's an instance where it's just like, you know, it would be great because maybe 30% of the contract is .NET development, 70% is research, consultation, PM, design, development, QA. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, in those instances, if we had a, a bench of, you know, specialized technology experts that we could pull in and trust to do the work, then it would be beneficial. But, you know, I haven't really, honestly, I just haven't made it a priority to figure that out. Yeah. This is actually a you know big piece, um, especially after COVID, when people have started going remote and you know be more open to hire people anywhere. That has opened up the door for a lot of nearshore offshore shops to work with you know clients, agencies or non-agencies because traditionally, as you said, like people you know were hesitant to do that, but now they are getting used to it. They are being forced to do that, um, and this also. Um, well, this, this actually is a question to you. Uh, if more and more agencies have started doing that, do you see or do you foresee it's going to be a price war or it's going to be like prices or the agencies are pretty similar right now, like, you know, mm -hmm. but do you think there will be competition on the pricing? They will start going down just because there will be higher margin once they start working with, our, you know, outsourcing. Yeah, you know, like that's, that's the idea, right? And especially behind positioning, because if you can't position yourself as a, as a tight enough expert, so meaning like not just like right now we're horizontally positioned across like a somewhat narrow band, but we have no vertical positioning. We're not like, you know, UX for financial services or whatever. Um, that's where you get away from price war stuff. But yeah, you're right. Like if, if it's, if outsourcing, I, for me, if outsourcing can get to that point where the work can be like hyper reliable and you have that uh, relationship and you can trust that the work will get done like to your quality standards and on time and then it, and it's and it's cheaper than doing it locally like that's a no brainer. But the the challenges and I'd be interested uh, Varun, to hear how you control this on the outsourcing side but like. For us, we've dabbled in outsourcing, especially when we were really small with like the occasional local, say WordPress freelancer or something like that. Yeah. And uh, the stuff that we would get back, we would spend just as much time fixing it as we would have if we would have like done it ourselves or maybe, you know, 80% uh, as much time. So at that point, we're just kind of like, well, there's no point, you know what I mean? We didn't have any cost savings because we're just redoing the work. And, you know, like we can point the finger back at ourselves, right? We probably didn't have enough, um, check-ins and and a process in place to mitigate that but that's the big the big problem that i haven't really put my brain onto so i'd be interested to know how you guys control for that yes so um i, I would be honest right first 10 or 12 years when we tried to you know approach agencies uh to partner with them we did horrible horrible job all the problems that you mentioned is absolutely true i mean it's worse than that we we you know, we thought it would be great to just partner with them, but we did not realize the expectations and the quality that they they, they want, right? We were just, you know, trying to get the work. So that was a that was a good learning experience for us. Um, that helped us understand, like, you know, um, what 
what what we need to do, what 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 agencies expect, what type of work quality they are they are doing. Mm -hmm. um, so you know, slowly and steadily, we started you know aligning the expectations, hiring more people, hiring better people, pay you know better salaries to and built a team which was specialized to work with agencies. So we right. like right now we have a you know we are structured in a very different fashion like we have 400 people multiple divisions but there's one set of team who works exclusively for agencies just because we know you know this is a cream of the crowd this is what you know uh, they, they want to create high quality work um, so that was our immediate answer it took us like four years to to get to that um, and that's why that was one of the reasons why we started this brand called together because now we have separated our galaxy brand and together brand and trying to you know make sure that you know we, we keep that quality high because with end clients with other clients you know it, it's not that quality does not matter but then the amount of the the, the, the way the agencies want certain works to be done it's very well defined very strict format and it has to be done in a certain way end client may not you know need that particular he's not very particular right, right. Uh, or you you lead them you tell them this is what you are doing so they will adapt to what you want to do but with agencies it's difficult um so that's what that's approach we have adopted and then i think that's one of the reason why um we have you know good solid partnerships with the agencies and have you know and that's why this model is working out for us for so many years yeah no it makes a ton of sense and i'm also interested too just in that like i think the next sort of frontier for paper leaf is um continuing to build out and do a better job communicating our consultative arm you know like we do a lot of consulting work up front for clients who come in with product kind of dreams or clients who come or UX research and, and systems design um, consultation work for larger organizations who have internal development teams, but you know they never talk to each other, and all of a sudden they got a dozen products that all look and feel different, you know. And that's uh, the kind of consultation arm of the company that we don't talk about much. And I've sort of put us in this position where we talk too much about the code that we write and the interfaces that we design not necessarily the consultation services we provide up front to make sure that those are the right ways to solve the problem. And so like the other side of that too, though, is me going, you know, we've already seen the uh, like the straight up website development market get eaten up by these pretty sophisticated solutions with, you know, Squarespace and things of that nature. And now we're seeing more and more, you know, business oriented solutions like drag and drop logic builders for, uh, web application, you know, so I think that's the next thing that's going to start to get eaten up on the production side. And so, you know, our counter to that is to be like, okay, you know, we, we can't make 80% of our money on writing the code and, and doing the production work. We need to, and 20% on consulting, we need to start to even out that balance a little bit. Do you guys ever worry about that on the outsourcing side? Uh, not really. I mean, because like we, so in our case, we do full service, right? It's designed to QA everything end to end. So we never had that as a problem because we have somebody in the team to do that work all the time, right? Right. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Yeah. That also goes back to kind of the positioning of together in that working with agencies to be the arm so they can say yes. And that allows, you know, allows us to support and be for you guys to be targeted in that side of the business that you want to keep doing, you know, or yeah, sure. want to expand in. So there's a couple of ways to kind of skin the grape. I've been using that instead of the alternative ah, like it. with like it. it, skin the grape. Yeah. <laughs> um, let me ask you one question, you know, to kind of close out our conversation. We've, we've, we've to come full circle. What keeps you up at night at this point as a managing director? You know, what are the things that you're worrying about? What's the thing that you're worrying about? I don't know. I think the main thing I worry about, I suppose, is just um, I'm accountable for everyone's sort of work well-being. You know what I mean? At the end of the day, the, uh, you know, the directors have their direct reports and they're interfacing with them on a daily basis. But at the end of the day, 
um, in terms of people being paid fairly and people having good interactions with clients and people feeling like they can grow in their roles and their careers and have a good relationships with their reports and teammates and, and managers, that all kind of comes back up to me. And so at the end of the day, I'm accountable for that. And at the same time, especially after being acquired, I'm accountable to the acquiring partners to, to do and keep Paperleaf doing what, uh, what it has been doing, you know, like to keep with the reasons that they acquired the company in the first place. And so like, I'm not, you know, stressed out about that. I don't think necessarily. I think Paperleaf is um, a pretty self-sustaining organization at this point. But it, you know, that's the main thing. Like, I don't worry as much. But I, you know, if you'd asked me this question three years ago, I probably would have said like sales. That's usually the thing that keeps me up at night. We design systems around to solve for that, and we, you know, what we need to put in in order to get out what we need to get out. So now it's about that. You know, I just want to have a place where people can do everything that they need to do and they can support their families and enjoy themselves doing it. And, and sometimes that can be a tricky balance as I'm sure uh, all of you can understand, right? Like when there's a, you know, an over demanding client who puts a lot of pressure on your team, but they, they pay 18% of your bills. Like that's, that's a hard line to balance. So yeah, that's probably what keeps me up at night these days. Well, thanks for chatting with us today. This was a, uh... This is an insightful conversation, I think. You know, good, some good insights, some good topics we haven't talked about in the podcast so far. Rune, any last questions? Nope. All right. Well, for those of you listening, you can find Jeff on LinkedIn, the Twitter, the Instagram, all under Paperleaf, and then your company website, paper-leaf.com. So add one more thing. Uh, I want to comment on their blog. Jeff uh, and team do, I have been following their blogs for some time and they, are, they write really wonderful articles, especially for the teams, for companies who are in web dev space. Uh, so definitely check them out and you know read some of the articles. They are really well thought, thought out, so. Paper-leaf.com, paper you know, the blog there is the one you're talking about, right? Yeah, you got it. Good. Well, that's it. So thank you. That's it, everyone. If you learned something today or laughed, tell someone about the podcast. Thanks for listening. Find our other episodes on agencies.build.com. Plus, we're listed anywhere you find your favorite podcast.